Please stand for the reading of the Gospel. We read from Luke's Gospel, chapter 17, beginning at verse 1. Jesus said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for that person if a millstone would be hung around his neck, and he would be thrown into the sea, than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. Watch yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Even if he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times returns to you and says, I repent, forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. The Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you could tell this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Which one of you who has a servant plowing or taking care of sheep will say to him when he comes in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Won't the master tell him instead, prepare my supper, and after you are properly dressed, serve me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. He does not thank the servant because he did what he was commanded to do, does he? So also you, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what we were supposed to do. This is the gospel of our Lord, we pray. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Dear fellow redeemed friends in Christ Jesus, who has called us to follow him as his disciples. The right combination. It's a phrase that meteorologists may use when in their estimation the, the atmospheric details are, are lined up for a hurricane like Hurricane Ian or a tornado or some other type of weather event. You might you hear a sports analyst say he has the right combination when an athlete has the, the, the right mix of strength and speed and talent and agility to, to make him a superstar. They, he has the right combination. You might hear it this time of year from political pundits when they say, well, the, the markers in the economy and the social turmoil there is and inflation, that's the right combination for, for an incumbent to be booted out of his seat and for the challenger to be elected and to win. The right combination. Today we're talking about something more important than weather or sports or politics, though. In the words before us, Jesus describes the right combination of what it takes to be his disciple. Now, if you're like me and the first time you heard these words, it seemed to you like just kind of disconnected sentences that don't really have anything uniting them, I wouldn't blame you. But I do believe there is a common thread throughout these verses, and, and that common thread is that Jesus, what Jesus is describing here is, or at least seems to be, impossible. It starts already with the first verse. I know you can't see it. It's hidden away in the Greek, but our translation has this. Temptations to sin are sure to come. The Greek literally says, it is impossible that death traps will not come. It's impossible in this fallen world for us not to be tempted and for us to sometimes fall into these temptations, to fall into these death traps. But Jesus says, woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for that person to have a millstone hung around their neck and dumped into Lake Michigan 
than to cause one of these little ones to sin. No, there are some Muslim nations that still will cut people's hands off if they get caught stealing. There are some states in America that still execute capital criminals. As far as I can tell from history, only mob bosses, drug cartels, and maybe those who participated in the witch hunts in Salem ever decided that drowning was an appropriate punishment. Just think of how torturous that would be to have a weight hung around your neck and then dropped into a body of water. And yet Jesus says that would be a better outcome for someone rather than tempting one of these little ones to sin. Why would that be? Because when we cause others to fall into sin by our words or by our actions, we are leading them on the road to hell. Certainly, you would agree, wouldn't you, that we would be better off dead than leading another Christian to sin. But Jesus says it's impossible for sin not to come. So what should we do when sin raises its ugly head? Inevitably, it will. In our homes, in our marriages, in our church, sin will raise its ugly head. What are we supposed to do with it? Jesus says, when your brother sins, rebuke him. Well, that's pretty straightforward. If you see or know of someone falling into sin, rebuke them. Point out that it is a sin and call them to repentance. It sounds impossible, though, doesn't it? In our world where the only unforgivable sin is telling a person, you can't do this, this is wrong in the eyes of God, it seems impossible to rebuke sin. What if I hurt their feelings? What if it ruins our relationship? What if they start screaming at me? Uh, that'd be a job better done by someone else, by the pastor or the elders. That's not my duty to rebuke sin. And yet Jesus is talking to all of his disciples here. It is every single disciple's responsibility to rebuke sin when they see it. Which raises the hard question. How many of us have actually done this? How many of us have called out sin rebuked a fellow brother or sister or someone in our own family and said, this is sinful in the eyes of God and you must repent. Again, Jesus said it's impossible for temptation not to come. It's impossible. We don't have a perfect church. You don't have a perfect marriage or a perfect family. There's going to be sin and it needs to be rebuked. How frequently have we done that? This is one of the basic descriptions of what it means to be a disciple, to rebuke sin when you see it. If we can't remember the last time that we've done this, do we really have any right to call ourselves disciples? Can we really call ourselves Christians if we've never done this in our lives? Sin is bound to come and it must be rebuked. But that's the alien job of a Christian. That's the, the foreign job. That's just the preliminary step. That's not really the most important part of our job as we follow Jesus. Just like uh, Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, for the Son of Man did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. 
So the real goal of rebuking sin is so that we can forgive it. As Jesus says, even if he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times returns to you and says, I repent, forgive him. Again, in a world that loves to kind of store up sins from people's pasts, that likes to call on on, old Twitter posts or old Facebook posts or or something that someone said decades ago and dredge it up and use it to, to ruin their lives, to get them fired from their job, this seems pretty impossible for those of us who are married, for those of us who have had children. What's your number? How many times are you willing to let your child do that exact same thing wrong and still forgive them? How many times will you forgive your spouse for doing the exact same thing to you in a day? Is it seven times? Maybe Jesus means 70 times seven, which would be many. This seems impossible. As as impossible as it may have seemed to rebuke sin, For us to do that in this type of world, I think it's even more impossible sounding to forgive sin. To say, I'm not going to remember this. I'm not going to extract a pound of flesh from you. I'm not going to bring this up again. In our world, that is a very difficult thing to do. So if this simple, basic description of discipleship Don't cause anyone else to sin by your words or your actions. Rebuke sin when you see it. Forgive it when they ask for repentance. If this sounds difficult, if this sounds impossible, you're not alone. The disciples, especially the apostles, understood how difficult this task was that Jesus was giving to them. And they thought they they needed something more. They didn't have within them what it would take to do this to rebuke sin and to forgive it. And so they say to the Lord, increase our faith. Lord, you've got to increase our faith. Make our faith bigger if we're going to do this. Did you catch Jesus' answer? It's, it's kind of funny. He says basically, you don't need more faith. You have plenty of faith. And he uses a picture to describe it. He says, If you had faith like a mustard seed, you could tell this mulberry tree be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. I've never seen a mulberry tree, not that I know of anyway, but from what I hear, they're they're trouble. Uh, There's as much roots underneath the ground as there is tree above the ground. And so simply trying to uproot a mulberry tree is almost impossible, much less to plant it in the sea. But Jesus says, if you have faith as small as the tiniest of seeds, a mustard seed, you could do this. You could do something that is utterly impossible. Of course, Jesus is not really talking about planting mulberry trees in the sea. What's he talking about? Carrying out the job, the duties of a disciple. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can rebuke sin when you see it. Especially with those you love. If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can forgive sin. Because the focus is not on you. That was the disciples' problem as they were looking inside to see if they had what it takes to rebuke and to forgive sins. And honestly, if any of us look inside, we don't have what it takes either. 
My fear will get to me. My guilt will get to me. Me thinking that I'm a sinner too, who am I to rebuke someone else for their sin will get to me and prevent me from doing it? It still sounds impossible, doesn't it? Even when Jesus says, faith as small as a mustard seed can do this, it still sounds impossible. Maybe, maybe impossible is not the right word. Maybe unnatural is a better term for it. It's unnatural in our world, you know as well as I do, to rebuke sin and then to forgive it. Maybe a case, a court case from Texas will help bear that out. Last December, a police officer named Richard Houston was called to an Albertsons, a grocery store in Mesquite, Texas, to address and to intervene in a domestic dispute. Uh, a man had been caught by his mother-in-law and his wife with uh, having an affair, and they found him in his truck with her at uh, this Albertsons store. And so the police officer, Richard Houston, comes up and he's talking to, to the woman and to her mother, and and without warning, a man named Jamie Haramio, I think is how it's pronounced, got out of his truck and without any warning shot the police officer three times shooting him dead. A terrible story. A terrible tragedy. Just about two weeks ago was Jamie Haramio's sentencing. And at the sentencing, as is the case in most court cases, the victims, or the, 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 members, the family members of the victim, Richard Houston's family, was allowed to make what they call an impact statement. It's to have an impact on the judge's decision for sentencing. Well, this is what Richard Houston's daughter, 19 years old, Shelby, said at that impact statement. She said, I forgive you, Jamie Jaramillo, for shooting and murdering my father. My prayer down the road is to spend time with you, not to yell at you, not to scold you, simply to tell you about Jesus. Can you imagine if that was your father that had been shot and killed? What would you say? And yet, it's shocking, isn't it, when this happens? Even the otherwise heartless media picked up on this and, and, and they were struck by it because it's so unnatural, isn't it? We live in a world where, where people hold on to vengeance for their entire lifetime. Where countless marriages and families and churches, churches have been ruined because people fail to forgive, refuse to forgive even once, much less seven times. And so when we hear a story like that, where a little girl, a 19-year-old, forgives her father's murderer, it's really unusual. Again, Jesus is pointing us outside of ourselves for the strength to forgive. It's not within us to forgive or to rebuke sin. The strength is not there. So now we have the first two details of discipleship, right? We have the, the kind of the road that, that Jesus wants us to walk. He says, don't cause others to sin, rebuke sin when you see it, and then forgive it when they repent. And then he says, you have the faith to do so. All it takes is just a little bit of faith to do these things because it's not up to you. It's understanding that even when God tells us to do difficult things, the strength will come from him. But there's still something missing. The, the right combination of discipleship is like a, a combination lock. You never see a combination lock with only two numbers, right? They always have at least... Three, and so there's something else that we need. 
It's motivation to do it. It's the thing that gives us the courage to kind of step out on a limb when we're rebuking sin and to step out on a limb when we forgive sin. And the thing that is missing yet is called grace. And that's what Jesus is driving at in the the little story about plowing and shepherding and serving. And you may think, I don't see grace in there. And again, you can't because it's hidden in the Greek. In verse 9, we have, uh, it says that, that um, let me see, let me read it here, where Jesus says, he does not thank the servant because he did what he was commanded to do, does he? So that's the way things normally go, right? Servants serve and masters are the ones served. And the master doesn't have to say, well, thank you for what you're doing. Now the word thank you, there is actually grace. And what Jesus is saying is the master doesn't have grace toward his servant when he does what he's supposed to do, does he? And in our world, yeah, that makes perfect sense. How many times does your boss thank you for doing your job? He just expects you to do it. Remember a couple weeks ago I said, when you're reading Jesus' words, especially his stories, his parables, you often find the gospel, the good news, in the place where he turns what's normal upside down. So what's normal in our world is that the master doesn't thank the servant for anything, doesn't give him grace for anything, and yet that's exactly what God has done for us, isn't it? Even though we have failed more times than we can count to rebuke sin and to forgive it, even though we are utter failures as his disciples, what does God give to us? His grace. He he shatters the, the, the whole idea of the master and servant relationship. The Lord sent his son into the world to serve us. He turns it all around. He gives us his grace. That thing that motivates us to want to carry out these difficult commands of his discipleship. And if you want to remember what grace is, just remember the acronym G-R-A-C-E. It's God's riches at Christ's expense. The call to discipleship to us was free. There was nothing we had to do. No job qualifications that we had to have. It was totally free. Jesus simply out of his mercy said, follow me. But that cost him everything. He was the perfect disciple. He never failed to rebuke sin. He never failed to forgive sin. And he certainly never caused anyone to sin. And what did that get him? It got him a death that's even worse than death by drowning. It got him nailed to a tree. God didn't hang a millstone around his neck, but he did hang all of our sins, all of our failures as disciples around his neck, and that dragged him down to the depths of hell where God held him there until he paid for every last one of them, every last time that we failed to rebuke sin and failed to forgive it. Jesus paid for that. And now when he says it's finished, it is. Even though at least for me, hearing this description of discipleship makes me feel very guilty of all the times I've failed you. i failed my family to point out sin, to forgive sin. All of those times that i failed, even those times where I'm not even aware of it, but maybe I've led you into sin, I've led you to waver in your faith. God doesn't see any of those anymore. The only thing that God has for you and for me is boundless, endless, amazing grace. Week after week, he 
invites us here to be reminded that we are his disciples, not because of anything we have done, but because of what Jesus has done for us. So while I don't think any of us would be bold enough or foolish enough to stand up here and say, yep, I'm an ideal disciple. The Lord is pretty lucky to have me. Maybe there's something else we can say. Maybe it's what Jesus told us to say. We are only unworthy servants who have only done what we were told. Because while I can't make myself worthy in the eyes of God, I can be unworthy, right? And when we are unworthy, then we're right where God wants us to be. Then, then we're right where He can get us with His grace. When we humbly confess with that tax collector, God have mercy on me, then, then we're ready. Then we're ready to follow Jesus. And we're ready to be strengthened in that hard job of discipleship. That's what coming here is all about. That's why we call them the means of grace. In, in baptism, the forgiveness of sins is graciously given to infants and adults who can't do anything to deserve it. In the words of absolution, God graciously forgives us our sins even though we stand before Him kind of like Jamie Jaramillo and we have to confess that we are guilty. But He forgives us anyway. In the Lord's Supper, we graciously receive our Savior's body and blood which will strengthen our faith. Which will give us at least that mustard seed sized faith so that when we walk out those doors, we will do what the Lord commands us to do as His disciples. So one last time, do you have the right combination of what it takes to be a disciple? Sounds pretty impossible, doesn't it? Don't lead anyone into sin. Rebuke sin when you see it. Forgive it when they repent. Each and every time. It may seem impossible, but it's not. Because God has given us His grace in Jesus. So that as you leave here, you're not lacking anything. You have everything you need. You have the right combination to be Jesus' disciple. Amen.